0: We have been uh, taking the last couple of weeks to go through a book of the Bible called uh, James. It's a letter written by an early apostle in the church named James, Jesus's uh, half-brother, right? Uh, born, I believe, after Jesus was born uh, by the Spirit, born to Joseph and Mary. His brother James, leader in the church, and he writes this letter to, uh, I believe it's an early letter in the history of the church, maybe before even some of Paul's letters, there's not a, a ton of worked out theology in it. I think he's just, basically he's saying, look, Jesus is Lord and King. I know that. So live like it. And it's a very practical book, 59 imperative statements in 108 verses. Like he's just saying, do this, do this. This is what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. And he's just unloading on his readers. And we've been focusing the last couple of weeks on the idea uh, that, 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 By the energy of the gospel and by the the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are motivated to endure suffering. To go through suffering believing that it's doing something good in us. And to endure and withstand temptation. That the the opposite of temptation is not purity. The opposite of temptation is actually faith. Faith in a God who wants a better life for us and wants a good life for us so we avoid sin intentionally because we want the good life that he's offering. Then last week we went through that very famous verse uh, at the latter half of John, I mean, uh, uh, James 1, where he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Actually, like put meat on the bones of this, actually go and live this out. And we said, again, that's not religion, that's not legalism, trying to earn God's favor. It's motivated by God's favor to say, he wants something good for me, so I'm going to go and I'm going to live this out, this gospel-energized uh, motivation. And so we've been, we've been trying to hone in on this idea of a, of a single-minded focus on Jesus, as opposed to a double-minded, a wishy-washy faith that goes back and forth, tossed about by the waves, he says, we're supposed to be single-minded. And I want to pick up at the end of chapter 1. There's two verses that we sort of glanced over last week, and they sort of segue into what I want to talk about today. So James is calling these people to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And then he gets to verse 26 and says, If anyone thinks he is religious, meaning you think you're doing the good things before God, If he thinks thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So if you look after orphans and widows and you do things for them, what do they do in return? What can they offer in return? Not much. That's a little bit of what's buried within this, right, is, is to look after orphans and widows and distressed people that can't do anything for you and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's calling them to move on from a life of religious consumption into faithful actions, which is what we're going to get into today. And there's three things here in these, this last verse 27 that he's going to run throughout the letter with the rest of the way. Um, watch your mouth, care for people, and live holy lives. Watch your mouth. <laughs> Be unstained by the world, live holy lives, and care for the people around you. And so we're going to see some of that come out today. In chapter 2, what he's going to get into is this idea that there are rich and poor coming into this congregation. What does it look like them, for them to live together? How should the church treat the rich and the poor when they come in through our doors? You know, what he goes after is that they're treating the rich well and they're treating the poor Poorly. You ever seen this happen? You ever seen the rich be treated well? Somebody with power, somebody with fame treated well when others were sort of pushed to the side? I have a funny analogy, but it sort of came to mind this morning as I was prepping. I remember being in high school, and it was the end of the day. Uh, it was like eighth period. We have periods, okay, eighth period. All right, so anyway, you guys don't have that anymore, your block schedules. But anyway, end of the day, I'm walking around in the gym. We're getting ready to go get on the bus, and I had, I had a hat on. It was a Flyers hat or something, and um, I'm walking around with my hat on, and the gym teacher, one of the football coaches, was like, Entwistle, you got to take your hat off. And I was like, it's the end of the day. He's like, you got to take your hat off. It's a school rule. Standing next to him is like a linebacker for the football team with a hat on. And I'm like, yeah, but he's like, don't worry about him. I'm like, "Ah." he was treated better because of his position, because of his authority. It stuck with me over these years and I'm still getting over it. Okay. But (laughs) all that to say, James starts calling out this sort of behavior in the church saying it shouldn't exist in the church. Because, friends, the church is not immune to this. Humans are not immune to this. The church is not immune to this. Regularly within church environments, people are treated better because they are wealthy. They are treated better because they look the part. People are put into leadership positions in churches. This is like the, man, one of the biggest faults of the evangelical church over the last 40 years is leaders have been put in a position because they were good businessmen and women. Not because they understood the gospel at all. It's messed up. Listen to the Mars Hill podcast. You'll hear more of that, where people with power are put into position simply because they look the part and they can get things done for Jesus. And the ends justify the means. And James James says, stop that. We're on equal standing in the gospel. And we're supposed to love one another like so. And so James condemns this behavior and he appeals to a higher standard, what he calls the royal law of freedom. The golden rule, this royal law that leads to freedom. And so the idea that I want to go after today is that the world, all right, the world out there, like the enemies of our soul, our flesh, the world, the devil, the world outside of the church views people through the lens of what can you do for me? This is how the world views you. and This is how we tend to view people as well. What can you do for me? And what the gospel calls us to, what James is calling us to, is that the Jesus' followers view people through the lens of, look what God has done for me. Look what God has done for you. Not what can you do for me. but Look what God has done for us, and let's walk in that together. So if, if you have a, a copy of the scriptures, turn to James 1 with me. We'll put it up on the screen for you as well. We're going to start... Uh, Laura, I'm just going to go right to uh, chapter 2. After this, you know, living unstained by the world and caring for the poor and caring for the widows and orphans, he says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Real quick here, I just want to say this before we move on. Most commentators think that this is outsiders coming in. This is not people who were already part of their body. This is if a a rich visitor came walking through the door or a poor visitor came walking through the door and they're saying, oh, rich person, good, sit up here by me. Poor person, sit on the floor over here by my footstool. He says, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts by doing that? Verse five, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet, you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, or however, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. What he's saying is the entire law, like Jesus says, is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. If you break any of that by not caring for the poor, you break all of it. You're a lawbreaker. You're guilty of breaking the entire summary of the Old Testament law. So verse 12. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, what we're going to do here is we're going to talk about what we shouldn't do and what we should do, or what we get to do in the freedom of the gospel, this law that leads to. Freedom. So the first thing here is right, we should not show favoritism in the church. This is the way of the world. This is what the world does. And saying, "What can you do for me?" He's calling it out right from the beginning, saying, "Guys, this is not something that should look. That the church should not look like this. When the poor and the rich come into your building, into your worship place, into your gatherings, you are meant to treat them equally." And I wouldn't say in the way that the world treats people equally, in the way that we try to do this through businesses and social media. Everybody needs to be equal, but, but in a gospel-centered way. And in verse 4, there's an interesting thing there. He, he says, um, this, this verse, I, I don't quite like the way that it's translated, and, and there's commentators sort of go back and forth about this. He says, if you do this, if you favor the rich and you don't care for the poor, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves. And it sounds like what he's saying is, haven't you made distinctions among your group? But another way to translate it really is he's saying, aren't you being inconsistent inside of yourselves? Aren't you being inconsistent in your heart? Which doesn't that sound more like James up to this point, this idea of being single-minded instead of being inconsistent and Instead of being double-minded, he's saying you're being, you're being inconsistent in your heart in the way that you treat the people around you. Your soul is actually shabby like the poor people that you're judging coming in the door. He's saying you're the one who's stained by the world. You're inconsistent in your heart in the way that you're favoring the rich and abusing the poor. He's saying that partiality, this favoritism, is a form of double-mindedness, which is that theme that runs all throughout his letter, saying we're not going to do that. This is not what we're meant to be with, as Jesus followers. And instead of after looking after the poor, they're looking down at them. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Pure religion is to care for the poor, to care for the orphans, and to not elevate one group of people over another. There's equal standing in the gospel. So let me ask you a question. Just think a little bit. We all do this. We all do it. Why do we show favoritism to the rich and powerful? Particularly in a capitalist society. I mean, it's just like in us. And if you feel like you don't do that, bless you. But I feel like we all have a tendency to show favor, good behavior, good actions. We want to give people the good seats. We want to, you know, get favor with these people who are rich, wealthy, powerful. Why? Why? I would argue we're making a judgment call. We're making a bet of some sort. We're wagering that if we do this, it will pay off for us somehow. It will do something for us. We're looking at it through the lens of the world saying, what will you do for me? What will you get me? And I think there's two kind of two key things here is we, we, we want the glory that the rich have. So we want to sucker up to them, right? We we, we want to get with them. We want to be with them so that some of their glory kind of rubs off on us. Some of their power starts to, to, to come over to us. We want their fame, their reputation. We want power in our weakness. We're like, oh, well, they're super powerful. Maybe they can get the job done. The church does this all the time. The ends justify the means. So we want them to give us glory but another reason we sort of uh, suck up to people who are powerful and rich and, and look really good is because we want them to love us and to save us. We want them to give us security. We want things to, to go well for us. And so if we get to be friends with this rich person, maybe they will take care of me in some way. If I could just be rich, then I would be okay. That's what's, all, that's what's going on in our psyche underneath there. We want them to comfort us. We want the good parties with them, the good things with them. We want them to love us. And we're like, well, they've, made, they've got it made. If they just love us, then my life will be complete. Then I will feel whole. We all do this. Watch your behavior this week. Just, just process a little bit of what you do with the people you interact with online, at work, at school. Just think about it. Or look around and see the people who are just constantly made more famous, more glorious, because of their already existing status in these things, and they just get elevated more and more and more. Because the world and our flesh judge people. We make these judgment calls saying, What can you do for me? Can you save me? Can you bless me? Can you comfort me? Can you love me? And the church has a history of doing this. It's a shame, but it's true. The church has a history of doing this, going all the way back to Constantine, the Roman emperor. The church was so happy that he got saved and became a Christian. And then it completely wrecked the early church, and people had to flee to the desert to find God again because the church was politicized, tried to link up with power. Every political cycle, whether you want to say it's Trump or Biden or whoever before and after them, the the church in America is regularly like, This is our candidate. If we link up with them, then we'll be good. Then we'll be safe. Then we'll have power. Then we'll have comfort. You know, I'll just like name names. You remember how happy the church was when when Tim Tebow got drafted? Well, now the church looks good. Tim Tebow, man, going so early. Oh, it's great. It's great. He's going to do so good. First of all, he was terrible. Can't play football to save his life at a professional level. What does that mean? What does that mean? We're so attracted to that. We're like, save us, Tim Tebow. Right? movie stars, Kanye West drops a Christian album. Everybody's like, great, great. Now the church will be popular. <laughs> it just doesn't, it's just so lame. It's so, but this is what's in our souls, right? This is what comes out of our flesh that says, ah, oh, we now, now we, now we're going to be okay. So that's like a, that's like a macro level. But James is talk, talking about the micro level. Like when they come in the door and we're like, oh, good. Now we've made it. Now it's going to be. Good. But what does James call us to? What does he call this church to do? He calls them to hold on to Jesus, not to the rich. Hold on to the faith in our glorious Jesus. Hold on to faith in a single-minded way onto the gospel. Because within that, there's no favoritism. And with that, there is equal standing among all people in the church. So we do not show favoritism because God does not show favoritism. Do you know that? That God does not, is not partial. He does not show favoritism. So we're called to hold on to the faith, to stay single-minded and consistent towards Jesus in our heart, towards him. To say single-minded in our faith, not to waver back and forth, making these judgments about who can do what for me. Just make one judgment, Jesus. That's who I want. That's who I'm after. And that leads to this equal standing in the gospel. So so when I say single-minded faith, what does our faith hold on to? He says the glorious Jesus. And I would say we hold on to the love of God, the power of God, and the glory of God. He's saying hold on to these. And when you do that, you will love the poor and the rich equally. You will love your neighbor as yourself. See, God loves everyone. And God is the only one that has the power to truly save all people without favoritism. It's just part of his character is that he is loving and he wants to save the entirety of the world and bring all people into new creation. Look with me at Deuteronomy 10. This is Deuteronomy we'll put it up on the screen. You'll we'll have to turn there, but Deuteronomy's in the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy means the second time the law is given. This is Moses recounting for the people that their journey out of slavery in Egypt. And he's giving them the law again, saying this is what God has commanded us to do. This is what he has called us to do. And God will be your God and you will be his people. And you're going to be a nation of priests, a royal priesthood. You're going to show the world God's glory. God's going to be with you. And then in verse uh, 17, he says this, for the Lord, your God, Is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He doesn't need anything from anybody, right? Who's he gonna be partial to? What's he gonna get from anybody that he doesn't already have? Verse 18, he executes justice for who? The fatherless, the orphans, right? And the widow, and he loves the resident alien. The, the, the refugees among us, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident aliens, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. Friends, this is the character of our God, going all the way back to the Old Testament, showing no partiality, taking Israel, the least of all nations, and saying, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the world. And I want you to do that by caring for the orphans, by caring for the widows, by like caring for the poor and the broken and the marginalized, for caring for the, the immigrants and the, and the refugees among you. He says, you're supposed to do that because that's what I did for you. Remember that you were the poor and the broken and the orphaned, the one stuck in slavery, and I cared for you. I'm calling you to do that for others. This is the character of our God. That he takes the least of people and he makes them great in the people of Israel, most notably in Jesus. And he makes them heirs of the kingdom, James says. Look at James 2, 5 again. This character of our God on full display through Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him. Who's normally the heir in the kingdom? The prince, the princess, right? They're the ones who inherit the kingdom from the king and from the queen. And he's saying, you've been put on equal standing with the prince. You've been made heirs. You who were poor have been made rich. You now inherit the kingdom. Kingdom in Greek is the word um, basileus, which... It matters in a minute. And I'm going to tell you why, but just remember that word basileus or it looks like basil. All right. Uh, he makes us heirs of this basileus, heirs of this kingdom and says, you've been brought in. God drags you into the kingdom. He has the love and the power and the glory to drag you into the kingdom to make you heirs. And you want to run off the, with the rich who drag you into court. He says, he's making this comparison saying that the rich are abusing you. Why are you appealing to them for power? I feel the urge to say, look at our political parties. They'll save us. Not really. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Maybe I shouldn't say it. It's just its just true. We, we so badly want them to save us. And what happens? It just doesn't happen, right? He's saying, God has dragged you into the kingdom of Jesus. And you want to go to the rich who drag you into court. Don't do it. You have been made heirs, sons, daughters of the king. You've been made heirs of the kingdom. You are no longer Orphans, you've been made children of God. For all who believe in Him have been given the right to become children of God. Why does He do this? Because of His love and it's for His glory. God gets all the glory, all the fame in His salvation work. Not the rich, God. He's the one who loves, He's the one who saves. So He's saying, hold on to faith in this God who loves and who has the power to save. But he's also calling us to look at the gloriousness of Jesus, the glory of God shown in Jesus, bestowed on the faithful. Paul says, look at 2 Corinthians 4. He's talking about Jesus here, Paul is, and he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Of Jesus Christ. He's saying, God, who literally spoke light into existence, light and life emanate from him. This is his glory, this is his power. It just comes out of him towards creation. And he says, and we saw it in the face of Jesus. And that same face now looks on all of us and that radiance radiates onto us and we are made alive. We are made light and life when we look upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And then he goes on in uh, chapter eight. He says this thing, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is the grace, right? You know this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, For your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. This upside-down kingdom theme runs all through Paul when he says he took the, the silly, dumb things of the world to shame the wise. That's you and me. He took the poor and elevated them to the place of the rich by becoming heirs of the kingdom, which is heirs of Everything, because it's all God's. And he says, all of creation is yours now and into new creation in eternity. He says, you are all poor. You understand this? We are all depraved, broken people. We are all in spiritual poverty. And Jesus, who was rich, who was above all things, became poor for our sake so that we could be elevated to the place of son and daughter of God. This is the gospel, friends. This is simply Jesus that we celebrate week in and week out out. We are all poor, all poor. We are all orphaned and we are made children of God. James is calling his church and I'm calling us to view people through that lens, that all of us are poor, that it doesn't matter who walks in the door or who sits in these rows or who comes into your home for community group or whatever it is, whoever you meet on the street, they are all impoverished people. Because we all are impoverished people, and we all have the opportunity to have the glory of Jesus bestowed on us through the salvation that he offers us through his blood shed on the cross. We are all on equal standing at the foot of the cross. All poor are made rich. All poor have the opportunity to be rich, and we can view people through that lens. So what this means then, this theological standing that we are all impoverished with the ability to become rich in Jesus, it means that we get to show love and mercy to the world around us, to whoever walks in the door, to whomever we encounter in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our schools. We get to live out the way of the kingdom, no longer doing the way of the world, trying to justify the end by appealing to power and wealthy people. We're doing the way of the kingdom, which is love and mercy. So I told you to remember that word, that basileus about the kingdom. When James says, live out the royal law, and you think of royalty, what do you think of? King, queen, kingdom. He's saying, live out the the basilicon, the kingdom law. So the law of the land for Christianity, the law of the kingdom that we all say we live in with King Jesus on the throne, the law of the land is to go and love people like ourselves. Love our neighbor like we love ourselves, right? Love the poor like God loved us. This is the law of the land. This is the royal law that leads to freedom. We've been brought into the kingdom, made co-heirs with Jesus, meaning we are now royalty, sons and daughters of God, princes and princesses in the kingdom. We now get to live out this royal law. It's life-giving. It's full life. It actually leads to freedom of saying, I don't need anybody. I have everything that I need in Jesus. It doesn't matter who walks in the door. I just love them. It doesn't matter who I encounter. I don't need their wealth. I'm not worried about their poverty. I have everything that I need in Jesus. I'm a co-heir with Christ. And now I get to live out the full life of Jesus. Join him in caring for all the impoverished, broken people who are around me. And then he offers this sort of, convicting word he says if you break any part of this law of god do not murder you know do not commit adultery mistreating the poor he says if you if you break any of that you're you're a lawbreaker across the board because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself he's warning them saying don't think you're super religious great people if you're not loving the poor If you're favoring people, and you're not seeing people as on equal standing, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. He's warning them, right? And he's saying, but but, but he goes on to say, right, mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is weird, right? He just drops in these huge thoughts. He's saying, don't judge. If you do, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. What do you think he's saying there? I think he's saying mercy triumphs over our corrupt judgment, our brokenness, because of God's righteousness, it, it triumphs over our bad judgment and our sins. I think he's saying if we show mercy and not partiality, not favoritism, if we are people of mercy, we find the full life of God. And we don't undergo God's judgment. If we are merciful people, it's because we've understood the gospel and we are saved, and therefore we are in Christ. Therefore, we are not under judgment. But he warns them, again, to say if you are unmerciful, if you're actually treating people with favoritism, if you're not caring for the poor, if you're treating them poorly when they're in your midst or in their community or whatever it is, judgment awaits. It means you don't actually understand the gospel. And friends, if we believe that God is a God of justice, if we believe he's a God of mercy and actually cares for the poor, doesn't it mean he has to do something about it? Doesn't it mean someday he will put it right? So he will bring judgment on those who are not merciful. He will bring an end to that someday. It's sort of wrapped up in this warning from James is to say, be people of mercy, understand the gospel, and then let that flow out of you to be people who don't show favoritism to the rich, but you actually care for the poor among you and in your community. Otherwise, you might not understand the gospel, and then you're under God's judgment. So we should show no partiality. There should be no inkling of that. When we feel that in our flesh, we should reject that and say, no, 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 I'm going to live differently than that because I'm the poor one. I'm the one who's broken and has been saved by the glory and the love and the power of God. I'm not going to look down on anyone for that. I'm going to offer the light and life and the glory of Jesus to this person, rich or poor. We've been given a kingdom and we do not need anything from the rich friends. This is the law of freedom. This is the freedom that we have in the gospel. We are rich in Jesus and can bestow true glory on all people in our church and in our community. And we are rich in Jesus and can offer his true salvation to anyone that comes in our doors, into our community groups and in our community. So rather than what can you do for me? What can you help me get done? How can you make me secure? How can you save me? How can I get love from you? Rather than asking those questions, we then say, look what God has done for me. Look what he's done for you. Look what he offers you rich or poor. It doesn't matter. Look at the salvation and the glory and the new creation that he offers you. Let's go follow Jesus together. Friends, we're all on equal standing at the foot of the cross. This is the beauty of the gospel. And we are set free when we believe that and go and live like that.